All right. So let's go. Two of my favorite topics. And we begin with emotional intelligence, which a lot of people have never heard of. EQ for short. I do this for every new hire that comes to any of the hospitals where I consult in Northern California because we are trying to develop a staff of people who are emotionally intelligent. And I'll give you some of the reasons for that. What's, what do you have permission to do at any time when I'm speaking? Get up and move around. Good, you're finally getting it. Although I don't see a lot of people getting up and moving. Now here's the other research. When you give the brain permission to do something, it sometimes doesn't need to do it like it did when you said you can't do it, which is really fascinating research. So I have people come up to me all the time, usually males, and they'll say, you know, I just can't ever go anywhere and sit. I just get so antsy, and I don't understand it. I sat this whole section. But somehow, when you told me I could get up and move, I didn't need to. And that's the whole purpose behind giving people positive instructions. And it really works if you get it. All right, brain benders, let's go. Top left. What letter is the arrow pointing to? Where is it in the word? Middle Earth, that works. Second on the left. Very literal. How many others? Four. Concern for others. There you go. Third on the left. Word in a word. Wings is one of the words. Waiting in the wings, good. Brain doesn't care if the letters go backwards or forwards. Bottom left, broken promises, top right. Performers is the word. Top performers, high level performers, backward performers, it could be any of those. Second on the right. The, that'll work. The word is awareness. So what's in the middle? All right. So that could be self-awareness, aware of everything that's going on around you, and you probably could come up with some others. Third on the right. Climbing on stage. And fourth on the right. Delayed gratification. Good job. All right, can you find a fox, a tiger, and a rabbit? Okay, who's got all three? Usually a visual, it gets all three quickly. Okay, got it? Who's got the fox? Everybody got the fox? Fox is right up there. Who's got the tiger? All right, it is an illusion made out of the branches 
And there's the head of the tiger. There's a couple of eyes. And where is the bunny rabbit? In his mouth. And we hope he's not hungry. These are very good for the brain because they push you to look beyond what you think you saw at first. And that's what the brain needs to do when you're brainstorming options. Look past what you think you saw at first. Okay, everybody got all three now? Good. All right, working definition of emotional intelligence. This is relatively new work. In fact, there's a book out by Dr. Singh, S-I-N-G-H, of India. And he has written Emotional Intelligence at Work. He is in the process of developing about a 50-question assessment that will be vetted, hopefully, in the United States so that it can be used worldwide by organizations who have people come to apply to work. So they'll fill out the application for the job, and they'll fill out an EQ assessment. The hope being that all things being equal, you start hiring people who have high levels of EQ, which will revolutionize the organization. So here's my working definition. Use any words you want. Remember the concept. Emotional intelligence, it's emotional intelligence quotient. And occasionally you'll see it written as I, as E-I. But I like EQ because it reminds me of IQ. Emotional intelligence involves the ability to know what feels good, what feels bad, and how to get from bad to good in a way that results in positive outcomes. Now, the human brain was designed to feel good. It is hardwired for joy. But all of us know when we feel bad. The challenge comes, how do you move from bad to good in a way that will consistently result in positive outcomes? That's a trick. Many people I work with back in the States know how to get from bad to good in a nanosecond. They just do it by some addictive behavior, usually something they sniff or snort or inject or something like that because it happens quickly. The problem is when you move from bad to good with an addictive behavior, you will have lots of negative outcomes in the end. So we need to learn how to move from bad to good in a way that always gets positive outcomes. Did any of you ever read Goldman's book on EQ that came out in the mid-90s? Okay, a few people did. When it came out, it was just landmark in the States. Nobody had ever heard of EQ, didn't know what it meant, didn't know how it applied to them. Certainly they had no idea that there was a continuum on which you could plot behaviors based on the outcomes. And you could say, boy, that behavior is pretty high on the continuum because it's getting consistently positive outcomes. Or, eh, not so much with this one. A lot of negative outcomes. And some of them, believe me, are not even on the continuum. They're so abysmal. And it's no wonder people are having trouble. Now, the higher your position in general, and nobody ever does behaviors that are 100% positive outcomes, but you want to move that direction. So the higher your behaviors tend to cluster on this continuum, 
the easier it is to recognize other behaviors and you start plotting them in your mind. Man called me up after I'd been lecturing out in Florida and he goes, is every brain dysfunctional? I said, yes. And your observation is? Well, he said, ever since you talked about EQ, I've been raising mine and everywhere I look there's dysfunction. And I said, well, it does make you more aware of your own behaviors and the behaviors of others, and that certainly gives you the option to set your boundaries. The thing that I could relate to is before I started having hip problems, I liked to drive four on the floor, four on the floor sports cars. And my favorite was the 240Z, or 240Z, as we'd say in Canada and Australia. Do you know what that car is? Yeah, well, I loved that car. My first one was a bright, psychedelic yellow-green. And I thought, boy, I've got something nobody else has got in the Napa Valley. This is so good. So I drove to the dealership, picked up my psychedelic 240Z. Took me 45 minutes to get home. I passed 11 of them. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, this is great. I don't have anything so unique. But I had not been aware of them until I got that one myself. So the more you become aware of things, the more you recognize. I don't think there's anything new about the concepts of emotional intelligence. What is new is since the, the mid-90s and now especially the last few years, we're getting a whole new body of language, of information, of research about EQ and how important it is in a person's life. I have brought, oh, half a dozen questions that Dr. Singh has developed, and I'll show them to you so you get an idea of, of what the questions are going to be like. The reason it's becoming so important is because researchers have identified a success quotient. And the formula is your IQ plus your EQ results in your SQ. For years, we focused on IQ. IQ is one small type of intelligence. And you inherit your potential. The recent studies that came out in the Lancet, the British Medical Journal, look like you get your IQ potential from your opposite gender parent. So anybody with a female brain probably got their IQ potential from their fathers. And everybody with a male brain probably got their IQ potential from their mothers. And before you get too exercised about that, you're just inheriting the potential has nothing to do with whether or not the parent did anything educational with it. And most people can raise their IQ from between 5 and 30 points if they want to work on it. I was lecturing my second lecture tour in Australia, and we were talking about something in relation to IQ, and I mentioned that some of the emerging research looked like that you got your 
IQ potential from your opposite gender parent. And this really lovely, tall, well-dressed looking woman came up to me and said, you're wrong, I'm sure you're wrong. And I said, well, I might be, and what particular do you think I'm in error? She goes, I've got five boys. They're all brilliant, you know. I got an MD and a DDS and an EDD, and she lists off all of these, you know, degrees. And she goes, they didn't get their IQ from me. They're just like their father. They got it from him. And I said, well, you might be an outlier. But right now, it looks like they probably got it from you. The IQ part, they got a lot of intelligences from their father. Tell me the reason you think they didn't get it from you. She goes, well, I only graduated from high school. And I said, did you hear me say anything about whether or not you'd done anything educational with your IQ? We're talking about IQ potential. It's got nothing to do with whether you chose to go to school or not. She looks at me with the deer in the headlights look, and she goes, you're serious, aren't you? I said, yes. She says, I've got to think about this. She says, those boys are coming home next weekend. I think we're going to have a discussion about IQ. And I thought, hmm, maybe best I'm out of the country by then. <laughs> but... Pay attention to that because it's really kind of fun. EQ is learned. You do not inherit it. If you had parents with high levels of EQ, they could at least role model it for you. Whether or not you chose to pick up on it is, would be your choice. But if you didn't have parents with high levels of EQ, they couldn't role model it for you. Now, in my family, my parents knew nothing about EQ. I'm sure they loved me to the capability of, of, of their ability to love. But my mother was left in an orphanage when she was five. And children can't raise children. So they didn't know anything about EQ. So as we've started to get this information, I'm comparing the principles of EQ with my behaviors. I realized I had some growing to do. And so the more I practice and the higher my level of EQ gets uh, the less there's a problem Ben do you hear a little bit of feedback my brain is picking up a tad so listen to that maybe you need to tweak something I wouldn't know how to tweak it but all right so here's the estimates because they don't contribute equally even if they're part of the formula so at most, IQ contributes about 20% to your success in life, which I think is just really good news because people make this big deal about IQ. I don't know what the mean IQ is in Australia. It's 100 in the United States. Same here. So under the bell curve, those of you who remember that, You've got one standard deviation on either side of the mean worth 15 points. So two-thirds of people in the United States have an IQ that runs from 115 to 85. And so people think, you know, well, if your IQ is 86, must be something you can't really accomplish a lot. That is such a ridiculous belief. Because we now know that EQ contributes 
80% of your success in life. So unless your IQ is 30, you know, I'm sure that you've got plenty of IQ because it's only worth 20% of your success. What you need to work on is your EQ, and that's learnable. Here's the reason we've started doing this in Adventist health. And when I say Adventist health, I'm not talking about, you know, teaching about health. I'm talking about hospitals and clinics and so on. That's the corporation in the, in the states. We want to hire people with high levels of EQ. And here's the research. Successful managers tend to have high EQ. Less successful managers often have high IQ, but low EQ. Now that's significant. And I think you can put that in schools and churches and families and hospitals and any place you want to. Successful people have high levels of EQ. To me, that's really good news because you develop yours. So think about this next week. What did you learn about EQ growing up? You probably didn't learn anything about it with, those, with that acronym. But when we talk about characteristics of EQ, probably there's some that you're doing very well and probably some that you need to work on. And now we've got a body of knowledge to help you do that. It doesn't show up on IQ tests because it's got nothing to do with IQ. And that's the reason Dr. Singh is trying to develop an EQ assessment. And as I said, I brought you some questions. It's front and center. Now you can actually go to some universities in the States and take classes on EQ. Because there's a huge difference, emphasis huge, in the way people behave based on their level of emotional intelligence. I brought you a couple of lists. You can go to my website, by the way, and you can get all these slides if you want to. So here's some of the characteristics that people tend to typically exhibit if they have high levels of EQ. And here are characteristics that people tend to exhibit if they have low levels of EQ. And moderate levels are, you know, somewhere in the middle between that. So if you are an organization, who do you want to hire? I mean, that's a duh. You want to hire people with high levels of EQ. It's going to make a whole difference to your organization. So ask yourself, of these characteristics, where do I typically fall? What do I exhibit in my life? Here's the second list. High EQ, low EQ. Now, let's personalize it. If you're looking for someone with whom to partner, who do you want to partner with? Again, that's a duh, as my boys would say. Here's the problem. It appears that we are attracted to and attracted by people at our level of EQ. Incidentally, we often partner with people who are within 10 IQ points of, of us as well. But EQ seems to be, we partner with people at our level of EQ. So people will come to my office, often students from Pacific Union College or something, and they're whining. You know what whining is. It's anger. 
squeezing out through a very small opening. And they come to my office and they're whining about the person they're dating or the person they're married to. And I'm willing to listen to them for a few minutes. And then I go, stop. I think you need to be looking at your level of EQ because we partner with people at our level. And if you think that person is just ridiculously low, then so are you. It might not be in the same, you know, particular factor. And if they come and say, well, I want to find someone to partner with, I go, stop looking. Start working on your EQ. And you will be attracted to and attractive to others and by others who have your level of EQ. So it's worth looking at. The biggest reason that I think we need this in the workplace, and as a preacher's kid, we definitely need it in the church. I'll tell you. Never mind. Here is because of conflict. All right, we're never going to get rid of conflict because some people are never going to do the work to raise their EQ. But the higher your EQ, the more you minimize conflict because you don't even pick it up. It's just amazing. You don't engage with it. So in the workplace, 2006 statistics, managers spend 18% of their time managing employee conflicts. And when you put those employee conflicts on that continuum of behaviors, where do they fall? Low, if not abysmal. Now, Adventist Health has said, we're paying our managers almost a fifth of their salary to manage conflicts that should never occur. If people have high EQ, they won't even occur. So we're going to do this push to see if we can raise the EQ of our employees and hire those who already have higher levels of EQ. And I think about it in the church. Boy, I think back to the board meetings that my father was in as the preacher. Oh, my goodness. Arguing about the shade of carpet for 11 months. Hello? And on and on and on. That's low EQ. Very low EQ. And if the preacher didn't have to spend that much time trying to moderate, you know, conflict, imagine what could be done. But we're wasting time. All right. How many of you are familiar with the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment? One, two, three. Oh, good, a few of you. Well, the rest of you are going to be very familiar with it in a moment. It's one of my favorite experiments. So it's a longitudinal study, meaning it is still going on. You can go to YouTube. You can type in Stanford Marshmallow Experiment, and you can get little YouTube clips of, um, you know, videos of watching them do this experiment with, with children, sometimes with only two or four, but it's fascinating. So Walter wanted to look at one characteristic, the ability to delay gratification. He picked four-year-olds, 653 of them. I don't remember in his proposal the reason he picked four-year-olds. This is my guess. After a about the age of four, the brain starts being able to tell the difference between pretending, imagining, and reality. Before then, there's no 
there's no ability in the brain to do that. So these little kids have imaginary playmates. And they tell their parents about their imaginary playmates. And their unenlightened parents tell them to stop lying. I had a little imaginary playmate because my brother was such a pain in the patootie. It was a little um, First Nation little boy by the name of Little John Deerfoot. And I loved him. I could, if I could just pull out my DVD and show you his picture, he was really cute. And he wore moccasins and leather and he had a bow and arrow over his shoulder. And I'd, I'd go through the woods chattering away to Little John Deerfoot. I made the mistake once of telling my mother about little John Deerfoot. And I got sent to my room for lying because she was well-meaning but didn't understand this. So kids often have imaginary playmates and they've got to be four, five, five and a half before they get it. How come you can't see it? It's right here. You know, they see it in their mind's eyes clearly as you and I see each other. They don't understand how come their mother can't see it. So here's how he set it up. He says to these kids, I'm going to give each one of you a marshmallow. You don't have to do anything to get it. You just have to hold your hand out. Kind of reminds me of salvation by grace. Now here's the deal. I've got to leave the room for a few minutes. Do you remember how long 15 or 20 minutes was when you were four? Some of you can't even remember when you were four. He said, if you wait to eat your marshmallow until I come back to the room, you can show me your marshmallow. I'll give you two of them. You don't have to wait. You can eat it anytime you want to. But if you wait, you'll get two. Do you understand? Uh-huh. So he puts out one marshmallow and leaves the room. Graduate students were around the one-ray glass recording every sound, every move that these children made, and it's so fascinating to watch. Sometimes it's almost painful. You know, there's this one little boy that just stuck in my memory. Red hair, freckles on his nose, hair sticking up at odd angles, and here he is. He's standing there. He's got his marshmallow in his hand. And he's looking at it. He's smelling it. And then he looks at it again. He licks it. Well, do you think he waited for 15 or 20 minutes? No, it's probably practically in his mouth already. So some of those little kids had the marshmallow eaten before Walter was even out of the room. Not good or bad, just what happened. But some of the kids, even at the age of four, thought differently. One little boy went over in the corner, put his marshmallow down, went sound asleep. And when Walter came back in the room, he woke up, grabbed his marshmallow and said, See here, give me my other one. And there was a little girl who gathered some children around her and she said, Put your marshmallow behind your back. Now, how smart is that? You know, out of sight at some level is out of mind. And she goes, I'm going to tell you stories. We're all getting two marshmallows. And some of the little boys who have more M cells in their retina uh, decided they were going to have an army. 
So here they are, hop, one, two, marching all around the room, holding on to their marshmallows, so they are going to get another one. So when Walter came back to the room, what fraction of those students could show him a marshmallow? What do you think? 80%, not nearly. Oh, 18%. Oh, more than 18. More than 30, but just a little. Really close to one-third. One-third of those four-year-olds could show him their marshmallow, which I thought was pretty good because, you know, we don't give four-year-olds a lot of credit sometimes. So 14 years later was the first big investigational part of this longitudinal study. And they got the names and addresses of all of these 653 kids, handed them out to new graduate students, told the graduate students, go find these kids, interview them, their peers, their teachers, their parents, and they had this big, long questionnaire. They wanted to know if there was a difference in the lives of the kids who got a second marshmallow compared to the ones who did not. And in my brain's opinion, the difference was staggering. And who would have thought? This is what I thought was the most amazing. Any child who had gotten a second marshmallow, didn't matter how they got it. Oh, and by the way, there were some little kids that ate theirs and then ran around and tried to do some bullying behaviors with others to get them to give them their marshmallow. It was very interesting. So anyone who had won a second marshmallow had averaged 200 points higher on their SAT results. In the States, that's huge. Do you have the equivalent of SATs in? All right, SATs are a big two-hour examination, and it decides, based on your score, whether you're going to get into your college or university of choice, whether you're going to have to get a loan or whether you're going to have, or you can have a grant. So you must have something similar. U-A-E. Okay. All right. Well, you got it. Doesn't matter what you call it. But 200 points to average is huge. And in addition, many of them were already taking college courses. Some were on the Olympic team. Um, many were doing well in track and field. Uh, many of them played a musical instrument. There was a significant difference in this one-third of kids just based on that one skill. Some of the other kids not doing well had already dropped out of school. Some were in juvenile detention, just not doing as well. So have you ever had to do something or wanted to do something in life that required you to delay gratification? I mean, come on. Have you, done, have you taken music lessons and you had to practice before you went out to play? Believe me, I had to use a lot of delay gratification working on my you know, dissertation and so on and so forth. So the research conclusion at year 14, when the kids were now 18 was that the quality of self-control at age four defined as the capacity to delay gratification as one single skill 
was twice as powerful a predictor of later success in life compared to IQ. And now we have additional research which has led them to say that 80% of your success in life is due to your EQ. So if you're not as successful as you want to be in life, you know what to do. Raise your EQ. Research breaks down the characteristics of high EQ in different ways. I like the one with eight behavioral characteristics because they're a little bit more specific. You find some books that try to break them down into four groups. But that's, it's harder to get a handle on it for me. So here are the eight characteristics that people who exhibit high levels of EQ tend to show consistently. Doesn't mean it's 100% of the time, but it's most of the time. So first characteristic is they're able to identify, accurately label, assess the level of intensity, and express emotions appropriately. Pretty huge. People who have low levels of this characteristic usually have to be hit over the head before they even realize that an emotion has arisen in their brain and body. I was called down to an office at one of my hospitals and the person there was throwing things. There was a, a laptop that had hit the wall, a stapler, I mean, all kinds of things. Some of them were sticking in the wall. And I walked in and I said, stop. I looked at the person and I said, the behaviors I see are very angry behaviors. person goes, I'm not angry. I said, uh, I understand that's your brain's opinion. Tell me what you are. Well, um, I guess I'm a little frustrated. No, they're already into negative behaviors. They have no idea that the motion of anger has been triggered. And the emotion is just to give you information. It's not to trigger acting out. But most of us don't know that. Secondly, they can recognize what the emotion is trying to communicate to you. There's lots of information on my website about this. In fact, you can go to articles and read the article, If a Child Can about a Montessori school teacher who's teaching three and four and five-year-olds this information and is changing their behaviors. So I only talk about the core emotions because those are the ones you can see on the face of the fetus during pregnancy depending what's happening to the mother. And those are joy, anger, fear, and sadness. Think of them as a little high orange highway cone. They're just to get your attention and give you information. When I drive around the country and I see a little orange highway cone or a little orange flag because of construction, I never stop the car and get out and pick it up and take it with me. But people do that with emotions all the time. They hang on to them and wave the flag day after month after year. They're just to give you information. So I leave, I leave the stuff right there and see what it is they're trying to communicate to me. And usually it's that I have to slow down because there's some construction or whatever. So 
joy is what the brain is hardwired to live at. I think that's not correct grammar, but you've got it. Anger is a protective emotion designed to alert you to the fact that your boundaries have been invaded. And it will give you energy to set your boundaries and take appropriate action. Fear is an emotion that tells you you're in danger. And it gives you energy to protect yourself and the people you love. Sadness is a flag to tell you that you've experienced a loss. And it will give you energy to grieve that loss and move on. But you leave the emotion there. And I'll tell you, especially in churches, they have a huge problem with anger. Do you remember the, the Bible verse that talks about anger? What does it say? It says two, two clear things. The first one is, when you are angry, and we will be because we do have boundary invasions by others. When you are angry, be really careful of your behaviors and what you do. Second part is what? You've got till the sun goes down to deal with it. You never want to go to bed with anger unresolved. It just is to give you information. Had a guy tell me one time that he had been waving the flag of anger for 11 years. He and his partner had done a startup in Silicon Valley in, in California, and they were just ready to go public. And his partner said to him, you know, we haven't had vacation for a while. Why don't you go take off somewhere for three weeks, and when you come back, I'll take off for three weeks. And for whatever reason, the uh, first partner didn't suspect anything, so he takes off for Tahiti for three weeks, and when he came back, what do you suppose he found? No company. Partner, big spawn, big, you know, absconded with all the money, and he was living someplace else. So he said, I have been lying on my couch, or laying on my couch, whatever is correct, uh, you know, drinking beer, smoking cigarettes, stuffing myself with potato chips, mad for 11 years. Very good. He picked up the flag of anger and is spending all his energy waving it instead of just getting the information and taking action. Three, able to delay gratification. Okay. Think back to when you were four. Would you have eaten the marshmallow or would you have gotten a second marshmallow? When I was in Florida presenting this at one of the Adventist Health Hospitals, I got back home and the ER, emergency department manager, called me and she said, I got a story to tell you. She said, after I heard the topic, I went home. I wanted to tell my kids about it. She said, I have a 26-year-old daughter and a 24-year-old son. My daughter was home. So I explained the experiment to her and I said, what do you think you kids would have done if you'd been part of the experiment? And my daughter said, well, I know what my brother would have done. All right, you've all jumped to conclusions, right? Low EQ. Jumping to conclusions represents low EQ. Don't have enough information. And the, the ER manager said, I jumped to conclusions, and I was just going to say, oh, he would have eaten it. And then I remembered, jumping to conclusions, don't have enough information. So I stopped, and I said to her, well, you obviously have an idea of what he would have done. Tell me. She said, he'd have gotten the second marshmallow. And the ER manager said, I was so surprised I had to sit down. And I said to her, what makes you think that? 
she said he turns everything into a rule. You told him, I will wash any of your dirty clothes as long as they're in the hamper in the garage. His dirty clothes are always in the hamper in the garage. I think he would have said the rule is wait for two and he'd have waited. And the ER manager said, I was so surprised I could hardly say anything. And I finally said, uh, what do you think you would have done? Her daughter said, well, Walter, Walter didn't say you couldn't taste it. I thought, this is going to be good. The girl said, I think I would have nibbled off the bottom corner. And I would have made a choice. Is this so good? I'm going to do what it takes to wait to get a second. One is it kind of so-so and one is enough. I believe there are four-year-olds that can think at that level, especially if they have parents who are emotionally intelligent. And um, I'm, I think about what I would have done. Probably as a preacher's kid, I would have waited because I got into so much trouble growing up that I might have figured I'd get in trouble if I didn't wait, so I would wait. You know, one of the biggest ways I got into trouble, I digress. Any preacher's kids here? Okay, you'll relate to this. I got really tired of going to new churches and making friends all over again. I didn't mind going somewhere new and seeing something different, but it was really hard always to be making new friends. And back then, the church was so unenlightened that it moved their pastors about every two and a half or three years. And the last research I saw said that ministers, at a minimum, don't even really get started knowing their congregation until about six years into their assignment. We never stayed six years anywhere. So I remember clearly, probably 13, we go to get another new church, and I walk in, and I'm telling you, you know, I'm close to introversion, and it's really not easy. I mean, this is not a problem walking presenting to you. This is a one-to-one. But you walk into a room and there's chairs all around the room and all these teenagers and you don't know any of them. And it's really stressful. So I walk into this room. The youth leader looks at me and goes, oh, you're new. Thank you. Uh, You must be the new preacher's kid. Yes. Great. We were just going to do an exercise and have everybody repeat their favorite verse. So we'll start with you. <laughs> All right. Rote memorization is really hard for me because it's down here and I live up here. I was always in trouble with my dad. He had me memorize a new Bible verse every week. Okay, I'm sure that was good. But this is how it would go. I'm not even awake yet because I don't wake up till 10 I come out to breakfast, and he's bright and bushy-tailed. Good morning, Arlene. What does John 3.16 say? Ooh. John 3.16. John 3.16. Come on, you know it. Well, I'm looking for it in my brain. Oh, I know. It says God really loves us a lot. In fact, he loved us so much, and that's as far as I would get. And he'd go, no. That's not what it says. It says, For God so loved the world. Okay, so that's my rote memorization problem. 
So I must have been feeling just a tad obstreperous, which, of course, you know, you're not supposed to do as a preacher's kid. So he says, we'll start with you. So this is what I said. My favorite verse is this one. It goes like this. It's far better to be silent and thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. (laughs) Hezekiah 13.13. So this poor unenlightened youth leader didn't even know that Hezekiah was not a book of the Bible. And he's going... I think I have heard that verse before. (laughs) Interesting. Next. Okay. So he must have gone and found a Bible during the break and figured out there was no book of Hezekiah because he had a word with my father. (laughs) I spent the room in my, my, the afternoon in my room. Okay. Four, you can articulate the difference between recognizing and identifying the emotion and whether or not you need to do something right now about it. It's just information. So many times you don't do anything. You just get the information. You go, okay, next time I'm in this kind of situation, I'll make this choice. You can listen, read and interpret social cues and understand the perspective of others whether or not there's agreement. EQ is nothing to do with agreeing. It has to do with you know your opinion. You can listen to someone else's. Sometimes I moderate my opinion. I did that this morning. When Dr. Thompson asked me if I'd, you know, spend some time in Acts 15 and see if I couldn't put something into the program about it, I hadn't ever put those two things together, and I learned a lot by that exercise, and now I'm going to present this differently. Sometimes I don't change my opinion. But it is not about agreeing, because every brain is unique, and every one of us only has our own brain's opinion. Exhibit effective verbal and nonverbal skills along with empathy and compassion. Here's where we get in trouble often as parents, teachers, Sometimes we're empathetic, but we can't get the job done. And sometimes people get the job done and they're not empathetic. So it's got to be a good match. You know, kids want to stay up till midnight on a school night, and the parents know they really want to see this program. Okay, you can do that. And then they get too little sleep, and the rest of the week is a bust. They're not getting the job done. I was thinking of the student nurses last night. This happened to me not long ago in one of my hospitals. I was consulting, and I was on a med surge floor, walking down the hall, and I see this sweet young thing coming out of a room. I don't know if it's my eyes or what, but they're looking younger and younger. And I could tell she was a student nurse because of her uniform. But she's coming out with a tray, and on the tray is a syringe with about three inches of white stuff in the barrel. And, you know, I'm an old public health nurse and started the first VD clinic in Napa County, which, incidentally, Pacific Union College said there was no need for because none of their students ever contracted venereal disease. I won't tell you how many were there the first clinic. Anyway, so I thought, maybe that's penicillin. So I walked over to introduce myself, and I said, I see you coming out 
of the syringe and the medicine's still in it. Uh, patient not in the room. Oh yeah, he's in the room. I said, so tell me the reason you're coming out with it. Well, she said, I went in and told him I had his penicillin. And uh, he said, ooh, that's going to hurt. I don't want it. And he pulled the covers right up to his chin. And I said, oh, okay. I said, well, that's not getting the job done. So let's go back in and have a chat with the patient. I said, tell me about him. She said, well, this is his third hospitalization in two years for gonorrhea. And some of you probably don't know, but that's a sexually transmitted disease. And she said, I've got the penicillin for him, and it's a really bad infection. I said, fine, let's go in and talk to him. I said, how come you um, obviously didn't explain to him the consequences of not taking this? Well, she says he's a little bit of a hunk. Okay. So, you know, a hunk in the United States is a, a male that's usually very good looking and got a buff physique and so on. I'm not so over the hill, I can't recognize a hunk. And she said, I just wasn't too comfortable. I said, okay, let's go in and talk to the hunk. So we walk in there and sure enough, there he is lying in bed, you know, sheets right up under his chin. If his body was anything like his face, he probably was pretty good shape. So I said to him, I understand that you didn't want to take the penicillin shot. No, he says it's going to hurt. I said, uh-huh. So before we talk about the shot, do we need to have a conversation about how you get gonorrhea? Because I understand this is your third time in two years. And every time you get gonorrhea, you get a lot of inflammation and scarring. And I'm telling you, fella, pretty soon you won't be able to do the behavior that got you the gonorrhea. No, he says, I know how you get it. And I said, oh, well, okay, as long as you know how to get it. Just got to make sure. So do you want me to tell a physician that you're refusing to take the penicillin shot? No, he says, I'll take it. It just, it hurts. I said, yeah, well, if you're smart, this will be the last time you need to take it. But I, I also know that looks don't equate with brains, so I can only hope. So I said to the, to the nurse, okay, let's go ahead and give him the shot. So he rolls over and exposes part of his posterior. Now, one of the things I've prided myself on in my career was I give really good shots. In fact, some of the time I'd give a shot and the person would say, when are you going to do it? And I'd say, I'm done. Because I practiced really hard on this. Well, she couldn't have done a better job of making it painful if she tried. <laughs> it was her first penicillin shot that she wasn't giving to an orange. So when I give shots, you know, I'm looking at the bare bottom hanging out there, and I'm looking at the top right-hand quadrant, you know, like you look at your face and here's the right frontal lobe. And I mentally put a, a dart you know, circle on there, and the, the syringe is the dart. And when I'm ready to give the shot, I dart it in, and I want it to go right up to the hub immediately, because that's how it hurts least. Okay, this is how she gave the shot. Here's his, you know, posterior. She goes like this. <laughs> it 
can't be smart. That's the last one he's going to get. <laughs> anyway, seven, you can manage your own feelings and moods effectively. A mood is just a feeling you choose to hang on to for a long time. And believe me, go into the staffing office of any hospital in the States. There's been three weeks of rain. Beautiful Saturday morning. You can go in there and you can say, okay, who's on the roster to work today? They'll pull out the list and I can say, who do you want to bet's going to call in sick? And they nail it about 85% of the time. People with high levels of EQ say, I know the hospital's planning on me. I'd love to be off this weekend, first good day we've had in weeks, but I will go to work. Low EQ people go, oh, man. This is the first good day in weeks. I'm not going to work. Let's see. Uh, that might be a hangnail. I'm not well. I need uh, not to come into work today. And literally, they call it because they, they know. Able to handle relationships effectively, minimizing any tendency to take things personally, to jump to conclusions, or to overreact. When we overreact, it's got nothing to do with the present. It has to do with something that happened to your brain in the past that you still have a lot of negative energy about and you bring all of that to the present. And now you beat up on the poor person in the present who had no idea they were triggering a bunch of stuff from your past. So this is where I started. When's the last time I took something personally, overreacted, jumped to conclusions, pull up the DVD in my brain, back it up, see what, how my behavior is going, watch where it takes a dive south? Hmm, what can I connect that with? All right? Now, let's refilm that, showing myself the way I want to behave. You do that a few times, you come to that kind of situation, your behavior will change. EQ has nothing to do with being nice, nothing. Women are socialized to be nice. That's a trigger word for me. I don't have any desire to be nice. You will not catch me trying to be nice. I want to be graciously functional at all times, but that's different from being nice, doing something that someone else expects that doesn't work for your brain. I'd love to tell you EQ is really higher in females because I have a female brain, but it is and doesn't appear to be. Has nothing to do with giving free reign to your feelings. It's fortunately not genetically fixed. And you can start raising at any time you want to. So I mentioned that EQ doesn't show up in IQ tests, but Dr. Singh is working on this assessment and I brought you a few questions to show you what they're like. And you can ask yourself how you do if you were answering those. What he does is give a little um, situation and then four options and he wants you to tell him which represents highest EQ. And then he'll write a little paragraph about the reason that he chose what he did. So when your idea is rejected, which of those four options is highest EQ? He says three, uh, excuse me, one and three, 
he says, are victim behaviors. He talks about victim and offender behaviors. So he says one in three are victim behaviors because you're basically saying there's nothing you can do. Four is an offender behavior because if you're waiting to beat the you-know-what out of your opponent, you will not have your brain on what you need to have. But he says if you analyze reasons for what you perceived as a defeat, sometimes you, it, won't, it isn't even a defeat. You knew far more about the topic than they did, so of course they didn't understand it. Or you could have put it across differently, and you'll learn something from it and then let it go. Explain your current life in one sentence. He says two, but I like the way he has it worded. A contented person who has what could make you happy. Most people are believed to have what they could be happy about if they chose to. He says that one and three are victim behaviors and four is an offender behavior because if you really believe that somebody owes you something and they're not giving it to you, you're at high risk for trying to take it. Three, when a hearing impaired person in your group misunderstands the phrase, What's highest EQ? I got this one wrong, and I think that partly reflects my introversion. I said three. I got no problem saying to somebody, let me repeat the phrase for you. I don't think you heard it. But he says that that's just like handing a person a fish to eat, that you need to do something to role model, comment about it, and I know that I could figure that out, but this was my initial thought. What am I going to say? You know, hello. I mean, come on, you guys. Can't you see the woman here on the front row is deaf as a post? You've got to speak up. But I know I could do it graciously. When you hear from a third party that someone made a negative comment about you or a friend of yours, what do you do? He says three. He says that one and four are victim behaviors. You're only hurting yourself. And two is an offender behavior. But if you just take a minute and say, if this ever comes up, I'll just make this comment. And then you think about something else. He says, statistically, you've got about a 15% chance it will ever come up unless you bring it up. But you're ready if it does. When newcomers with different opinions attend your group, what do you do? Absolutely three. But don't every one of you in this room remember an experience when some of the other things happened? Very low EQ. Oh my goodness. When classmates comment you're not smart, since you don't know the lingo, what do you do? Well, he says that one and three are victim behaviors, especially if you need the class. That two is an offender behavior. They have as much right to their opinion as you do. But if you evaluate their comments, accept the challenge, and prove you can improve, then there you go. Sometimes that's a little bit hard to get, but I think it's the way to go. Now the last one.
I was at a college. They asked me to do a session for all the freshmen, see if they could help them raise their EQ. So I give them the seventh question. They couldn't even get to the options. And I was beginning to get a little nervous. And what's wrong with these people? And then I thought, oh, yes, brain development. Hmm, probably 17 to 21, the bulk of them. Um, corpus callosum isn't done till what age? 20 or 21. Prefrontal lobes aren't done till mid-20s. Okay, their brains aren't done. Cut them some slack. Because this is how it went. After involuntary transfer to a project with a new boss in a remote area, albeit with a pay hike and promotion responsibilities, uh, possibilities, that's as far as I got. Guy in the back says, Dr. Taylor, where's the remote area? <laughs> I said, anywhere you want it to be. He goes, well, I have to know where it is before I can answer the question. I go, no, you don't. Somebody else says, are you married or single? And I said, are you asking me or are you talking about the question? <laughs> Again, it doesn't matter. And they said, oh, yeah, it does, because you might not want to leave the person you're married to. And I said, but you might. You know, if you're happily married, you got a pay hike, so you can bring them. Doesn't say you couldn't bring them with you, but certainly you can visit them. But if you're not happily married, you get paid to have a break. You know, come on, how are you going to look at this? So anyway, they couldn't get it. It was just amazing. The next question was, well, well how much is the pay hike? You just have to let the brain grow up. So you can go to my website. Here's the emotion staircase model, and it's really helpful. That's what the teacher used, and I wrote about it in If a Child Can. So emotional intelligence is critically important to your success in life, and you're the only one that can do anything about it. So take a look at what things you do really well, and take a look at the ones you need to work on, and the sky's the limit. All right, let's get up and move around for at least five minutes. We'll get the next set of slides up here, and that'll be our last session.